Honestly, so excited to be able to preach on this passage of Christ's temptation in the wilderness. In 16 and a half years of pastoring, I've never had the opportunity to teach or preach on it before. And uh, it's just an utterly remarkable um, section of scripture. So I'm yeah, very glad to be, that we, we can look at it together. The temptation account immediately follows after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River. And it lasts 40 days. It culminates, uh, concludes in three temptations, which you may have noticed are pictured on the front of your bulletin. The first, Jesus is tempted to make bread out of stones to relieve his hunger. The second, Jesus is tempted to worship Satan in return for all the kingdoms of the world. The third, Jesus is tempted to jump from a pinnacle of the temple and rely on the angels to break his fall. Um, there are so many interesting symbolic things going on in this passage. We'll talk about those. Uh, there's some also excellent practical ideas on how we can resist temptation in our fight against the devil. I, I hope to speak on that. But most of all, I mean, the greatest part is what we see here about Jesus Christ. Um, we see a, a champion who is fighting a brutal, uh, waging a brutal um, fight on our behalf, for lack of a better way of putting it. And my hope is that this sermon would set your heart on fire with love for Jesus. You would walk away with a greater awe of and love for your champion who's won the victory on your behalf. Luke 4, 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, the devil here quotes Psalm 91, which speaks about God providing protection for the Messiah. Psalm 91, verse 11 through 12, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot, foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. 
The region where Jesus was being tempted is one of the most desolate, God-forsaken, barren stretches on planet Earth. It is a section of Judean desert just north of the Dead Sea, about 35 miles by 15 square miles, uh, a place where like nothing grows. There's virtually no precipitation. It's like Atacama Desert Dry. And it's interesting because, and I put this at the beginning of the bulletin, whereas Adam fought his battle against the devil in the garden, like in paradise, where he had everything at his disposal, he had everything that he needed. Jesus fought his battle on a barren moonscape where there was literally nothing there for him. Nothing but rocks and scorpions and dust. Uh, How does somebody survive 40 days without food? Isn't that incredible? People have done it before. We know that. We know with hunger strikes that people have been able to go even longer than 40 days. But can you imagine what you would feel like even after two days without food? Imagine what it, uh, how weak you would feel if you were to go 40 days and at the very end. Um, it's very important when you look at the passage there in verse 1, or rather verse 2. Jesus was attacked all 40 days by Satan. It's, you've got to note what the text says. It was only at the end of these 40 days that he began to be hungry. What is going on there? How do you only get hungry after 40 days? I think it's a very important clue that speaks to the intensity of the attacks. And we know this. Uh, have, you ever, have you ever gone through a period of your, of your life, maybe uh, some great period of agony and suffering? Somebody you love is in the hospital and they're dying. A child has cancer. You're so racked with fear. Uh, you're, you're, maybe you're the one who's sick or maybe you're the one who's going through a divorce. You go through any traumatic event. What happens to your appetite at those, at those moments? It completely evaporates, doesn't it? You are, you're, all of your attention is on whatever it is that you're suffering. You're, it's like, I don't want to eat anything right now. You don't have time for hunger And I think that's exactly what is going on here. The attacks on Jesus for 40 days were so relentless. They were day and night, night and day, absolutely relentless opposition. Everywhere he goes, everything he does, there's this unremitting intensity. He's probably racked with insomnia. For 40 days, it doesn't let up until the very end. And I think there's, that's the clue that Jesus only becomes hungry at the very end because it's almost as if the devil lets up for just a second and then he begins to be 40 days worth of hungry. The devil then swoops in for his last attack. He swoops in for the kill. You can't help but wonder if during those 40 days the world wasn't a little bit happier of a place. The devil, we said it, I had it in one of the footnotes or the side columns in the bulletin. The the devil isn't omnipresent. Like he is localized. He can't be everywhere at once. He's at one place at one time. So it, it just so happened that for these 40 days, he, and I would assume a very large number of his demons were there in this one place 
at that one spot on planet Earth. And I wonder, just wonder, if the rest of the world felt for just a moment that things are a little bit better right now. But things were certainly not better for Jesus. We should see these 40 days as 40 days of living hell on earth. Uh, if, you, if I give you one image to describe it, Jesus Christ is like a fox that is, that is literally being hounded every moment by the devil and his demons. If there was a spiritual x-ray video camera that recorded those 40 days, I'm sure it would, it would make the worst horror movie that we see on television blanch by comparison because he is, he's constantly being chased. Three points this morning, or three things I want to look at. Number one, let's look at the temptations. Number two, let's look at the scriptures. And number three, let's see how he uh, is a special kind of champion, not just a generic champion, but a champion for Israel and a champion for the world. But first off, the temptations. The first temptation, bread, uh, stones to bread. Let me ask you, what's so disobedient about turning stones to bread? Are, are there any prohibitions in the Bible about this? Thou shall not turn, I mean, no prohibitions that I can think of. Um, there are the laws in the Bible about preserving life. And Jesus had to be at the, the very brink of his life. I mean, he was, he, was a, he was probably like 90 pounds soaking wet. And I mean, he has no body fat on him. He is so physically weak and emaciated at this point. He's about to die. One can make the argument that turning bread to stone, or, sorry, turning stones to bread is actually preserving life not taking life away, and that's in accordance with the rest of what the Bible teaches. So why is this wrong? And the answer, here's why. Jesus never uses his power for himself. When you read the Gospels, it is unmistakably clear that Jesus only uses his power in service for other people. Like, there's never a time in the, in the Gospels where Jesus is out, side with the disciples and it's raining and he snaps his fingers like watch this guys boom voila there's a roof over his head there's never a time when this poor man who didn't even have a home for three years he slept on the ground at night when he decided ah my back is killing me this is so uncomfortable and you know a feather mattress appears on he had that power. He could do that. He never does. He never used his miraculous power to meet his own needs, but only to meet the needs of others. Like, isn't that remarkable? That is our Savior. Doesn't that make you want to say hallelujah? That is our Savior. Hallelujah. hallelujah. Amen. Secondly, the devil leads him to a high place. Let's look at it in verse 5. And he showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. This is a very interesting verse because there's obviously no place high enough to literally and physically see everything that is in the world. The traditional location for this temptation is a mountain in the Judean desert called, called Mount Queratania. 
There's actually a Greek monastery that is located on the top of the mountain. It's 1,500 feet, which doesn't seem very tall by our standards, but the Dead Sea is what, how many feet below sea level? So uh, on top of Mount Queritania, you can see a long way, but you certainly can't see everywhere from there. What is happening? Well, I think what Satan was trying to do, it's a visionary experience. He takes them onto the mountain, he gives them a vision, and he's trying to inflame Jesus' imagination. He wants Jesus to be captured by the glory and the beauty and all the power of of all the other kingdoms of this world. He kind of flashes that in front of him in technicolor in order to inflame his imagination when he's so weak. Like when he's so tired, when he's so hungry. And often, isn't that the way that the devil tempts us? He does the same thing. Here's a silly illustration I've used before. If you go to your doctor and your doctor says to you that uh, you're going to die if you keep eating steak, you have to have a low-fat diet. There's two things you know. You know steak is wonderful, it tastes great, and if I eat it, I will die. And in the moments of temptation, what Satan does is he will create a giant billboard in your mind that shows you steak and all of its savory goodness, with little bits of parsley on the top. And, you know, it's just perfectly cooked, right? There's also a little muffled voice in the back of your mind. You can barely hear it while the steak trumpets are blaring in your head. And the voice, that little voice says, heart attack. But it's so faint, you can barely hear it. So what do you have to do? You have to put your doctor on the billboard. (laughs) It's as simple as that. As you're looking at the steak, you have to close your eyes for a moment and picture your doctor, or, or maybe more morbidly, picture yourself clutching your heart as you're falling to the ground. Because if I eat this, I will die. And the temptation is always to inflame your imagination as it was for Jesus Christ. I'll say one other thing about uh, the way Satan tempts us. Um, Kind of on the way, on the way into sin, when we are, when we are being tempted on that way, Satan almost always says, go ahead, it's all right, God is a forgiving God. Go ahead, he'll forgive you. And then as soon as you commit the sin, Satan comes right back and says, how could you how could you do that? How could God forgive a wretch like you? It seems to me there's always those two lies, and they always go together. The tempting lie, go ahead. After all, God can always forgive you. And besides that, there are other people who are doing it as well. On the way in, he makes sin look very easy. And on the way out, he makes sin look oh so shameful and you dirty piece of... And it makes you want to recoil from God because you feel so dirty inside. Get this, friends. This is such good news. If 40 days taught Jesus uh, anything, it taught Jesus empathy. That's what Hebrews chapter 7 and and, uh, the worship service earlier said. It taught him empathy. Like he, he, he was tempted, tempted so hard and harried like a, like a fox so much 
He knows how hard it is to fight against the devil. And he also knows that we're weaker than himself. And so when we go through temptation, he knows. He, he feels what we feel. He knows it not because he's omniscient and God. He knows it because he's man. And he feels like genuine, heartfelt empathy for us. And that's what makes us want to go to the throne of grace to find help when we have fallen. That's the good, the good news. The ter- third temptation is located in verse 9, where we read that the devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, if, if you are the son of God, actually he starts all of those temptations that way. If you're the son of God. Now, just 40 days earlier, the father had declared unmistakably at Jesus' baptism, you are the son of God. You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Like God said it, period. And immediately Satan comes in and causes Jesus to doubt it. Now, what does that sound like? Does that remind you any other play, of any other place in the Bible? It's, it's just like Adam in the garden. Did God really say that you... You can't eat from any of the trees of this garden. Did God really say? God said it. God declared it unmistakably. And the devil comes along and he puts question marks where God has put periods. He asks questions to get you doubting about things that God has truly said. If this is really true, then let's get God to prove it, the devil says. Let's get God to do a special effect. What we'll do is we will throw you off the pinnacle of the temple and think what it's going to be like when God, through his angels, demonstrates his power and instead of you falling and your body dying upon the rocks 150 feet below, his angels come and they lift you up as light as a feather. Let's get God to see if what he said is really true. If you are really the Messiah, make God demonstrate his power. Now, I'll talk at the end of the sermon uh, why, why that, the temptation is phrased that way. Let me say this. If you're somebody who doesn't believe in the devil or you don't believe in supernatural evil, if you think that evil, which is a secular worldview, evil is, basically, is nothing more than a sociological, psychological con- construct There is no such thing as true evil. It is entirely psychological and sociological. If that's what you believe, I urge you to change your worldview because the devil is real. I urge us as Christians to change our worldview and to realize that Jesus Christ is not Superman. I said it before. He's not Superman. He's Clark Kent, (laughs) so to speak. Jesus Christ lived the life of a true, authentic man, and he did so without any assistance whatsoever from his divine nature. Like he, never, he never dug into his superman. Uh, he had to face temptations just as we do, and therefore he truly understands us, as I said before, not because Jesus is omniscient, but because he is a man and he faced the same problems as we did, and he was victorious. So that's number one, the temptations. Number two, the scriptures. Obviously, Jesus replies to each one of these temptations with scripture. 
Maybe you didn't know that. I'll explain that. How he deals with the temptations using the word of God, the scriptures, is very instructive for us. And I'd like to get at this by first, by uh, maybe doing a thought experiment for a moment. Um, And we'll go this way. We all have a public persona, right? We all know how when we step into a public situation, even if we have just had the worst fight with our spouse in the world, we can step into church on Sunday morning and we can put it all together and look fine. You know, it, you, things could be really difficult in your life, but you know how to enter into that business meeting on Monday morning and have put it all together. You know how to be the person you're expected to be. And we do that as much as we possibly can. But when you're in moments, again, of extreme agony, maybe you're staring death in the face, maybe you're experiencing crushing pain, what happens then is that your public persona is gone. At that point, at that point, whatever comes out of you is the real you. You're no longer trying to be what you're expected to be. The real you is what comes out. When Jesus Christ went through these times of astounding crisis, what came out of him was the word of God, was the scripture. The scripture was his real you. On the cross, a perfect instance of this is when he is, he's dying in agony. What comes out of Jesus? What does he say when he's up on the cross? He, he, he's citing the Psalms. He's, he's quoting the Psalms. And then here, 40 days of assault without any food, and he's in absolute agony. He's probably barely even able to stand or to, to walk. And what comes out of his mouth? Of all things, the book of Deuteronomy. You think of all the passages to quote. He's got the book of Deuteronomy memorized, which is very significant. We'll talk about it but in a minute. All three of the quotations are from the book of Deuteronomy, which at a minimum means that this man was so completely and thoroughly permeated and saturated with Scripture. When you crushed him, it is Scripture that just oozes out. One author summarizes it this way by saying, it was the scripture that shaped his life. The scriptures nurtured him. It was his meat. It was his drink. It was, it was his blood almost. He, he was bleeding scripture when he was speared and nailed on the cross. It was that crucial to who he was. It was that crucial to how he thought. It was that crucial to how he felt. That's the reason why He automatically, when crisis hit, goes to the word of God and it guides him and and empowers him. Friends, if Jesus didn't think that he could handle life without knowing the scriptures inside and out, then why would we ever think that we can? Um, How are you doing with that? How are you doing with having the word of God that deeply penetrating you? So bread, I keep missing this, missing this up. Stones to bread, not bread to stones. Stones to bread. What does he have? He's got, a, he's got a bread passage of the Bible memorized for that very moment. See, um, he's got oh, the, the uh, what's the second temptation? I'm losing myself here. Uh, kingdoms of the world. He's got a, a worship passage memorized for that moment. Um, pinnacle of the temple. He knows how best to respond to this passage that the devil quotes from Psalm 91. So it's not as though that 
there's anything magical about the Bible. It's not like Jesus pulls out his Bible and, the, and throws it up at Satan and Satan starts hissing and backing away like a vampire. What I'm trying to say is Jesus knows the perfect part of Scripture to bring out in, in the specific um, situation. And if Jesus Christ didn't think he could handle life without memorizing and meditating on the scriptures and having the scriptures dominate his thoughts, we, we certainly shouldn't think that we can. As he said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, my words will never pass away. So another way I'd like to uh, put, put this is, on the, on maybe this is the negative, but I'd like to have you consider that Satan cannot harm you, like can't truly harm you unless he is able to dislodge the truth from your soul and fill your soul with the lie or give you or, or place a foothold, an emotional foothold inside of you. So let me explain this. In Luke chapter 22, verse 3, that is the story of Judas. It says there that Satan came, he entered into Judas' heart, and then Judas started at that moment to look for ways he might betray Jesus. And you say, well, what does it mean for Satan to enter into Judas? If you think about it simplistically, you might think, well, he, he was sort of possessed, kind of like in the movie The Exorcist. We can imagine a couple of disciples walking along saying, hey, have you noticed anything different about Judas lately? The other disciple says, yeah, he talks in all these strange voices. You know, sometimes his head spins around completely. He vomits green stuff at you. And the other disciple says, yeah, what's up with that? But that's not what happened, is it? How did Satan enter into Judas? It was, it seems as though it was through his envy and his resentment. Like Judas allowed an envy and, his, and a resentment to take root inside of him and allowed that to grow. So in Ephesians 4.27, Paul tells us that we are, to, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a, a foothold. And that's a strange statement. To let the sun go down on your anger means to hold a grudge. It means to not deal with that anger properly. What Paul says is if we nurture spiritual darkness inside of us, even by just holding on to a grudge, it gives an opportunity for the supernatural darkness outside of us to kind of come and grab a foothold and create an alliance what you might find is if you do this, you get yourself locked up into an emotional dungeon, kind of like doubly locked and triply locked. And you may be surprised that you can't get out of it then whenever you want. Like you can't seem to let go of your anger and your bitterness whenever you want because it will have you trapped inside. I'm sure Judas did not like go into the whole thing thinking, yeah, I'll betray Jesus and get him crucified. But it was that foothold that took him to very, very bad places. All of this to say, friends, that we must have the Bible permeating our insides like a filled sponge. And it can't be the lies. And it can't be, it can't be any of the other stuff. It must be the word of God. Lastly, thirdly, point three, how Jesus is our unique champion I've showed you that he's our example. He shows us 
how to defeat Satan. But most of all, he is our champion who defeats Satan without any of our help, without anybody else's help. The angels don't come and minister to Jesus until at the end of the temptation. He was all alone, all by himself as he fought this battle. Here's the question. Why was he tempted in these three ways? Why these three final particular temptations? And I think the best answer to that question is these correspond exactly with what Israel faced in her 40 years in the desert. The clue that we get here is that all of Jesus' answers are taken from a section of the book of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, through Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. In this section, it's a section that deals with the time Israel spent in the wilderness. So Jesus is is answering according to Israel in the wilderness. So look with me, the first temptation. Think back into Israel's history. When she had passed through the Red Sea and went into the wilderness, she realized that she had no bread. And so what did she do about that? She grumbled against the Lord and against Moses. And the Lord caused her to hunger in the wilderness for 40 years to see what was in her heart and to learn the lesson. Deuteronomy 8, verses 1 through 3, the man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Israel was taught that she must rely on the Lord for her bread, not grumbling against him, but trusting that whatever God gives, be it life or death, that God would do her good. Second temptation, when Israel was waiting for Moses to come down from the top of Mount Sinai, Moses was there for how many days? 40 days. And Israel gets tired after 40 days and thinks, well, this Moses guy, he's, he must be dead. He's not coming back. And, he, and Israel thinks, God won't provide for us. We, you know what we need? We need some new gods. So they construct a golden calf at the foot of the mountain and they bow down and they worship the golden calf. Who were they worshiping at that moment? They were bowing down to Satan. They bowed down to Satan and committed idolatry. They, they were afraid and they believed that these false gods would ultimately lead them into the promised land and give them kingdoms that were not theirs yet. Hear the echo? And then the third temptation, the Lord ends up feeding them with manna and quail from heaven. So what did they complain against next? They, they complained against water. They grumbled against Moses and the Lord. And then, and this time, according to Exodus 17, verse 7, it says, And Moses named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested Yahweh saying, is Yahweh among us or not? They put the Lord their God to the test saying, we will not trust God until he demonstrates his power by giving us water in the desert, which he ended up doing. He brought water from the rock. So do we see then what's going on here? Jesus trusts the Lord for his bread. Jesus does not succumb to idolatry. He refuses to trust, to test the Lord as God. And, and, um, and uh, what was the last one we're forgetting? Pardon me? And, 
And he, and he trusted the Lord as God to give him all the kingdoms of the world, not instantaneously as the devil promised, but only by means of the cross. And so this is showing us that all the Bible's about him. <laughs> He's the true Israel. And all of the Bible is about him. I love how Pastor Rob Rayburn puts it. He said, It would have been, we suppose, terribly hard, backbreaking, and heartbreaking work for Jesus to deliver us from our guilt and from the power of sin had there been no devil. But to add the devil's relentless opposition to him at every turn, that makes the Lord's work and achievement only the more staggeringly glorious that he was victorious over the greatest conceivable powers that could be united against him. And at the end of 40 days, where Israel failed, Jesus Christ triumphed. I love this line. The devil did his best, but it was not good enough. Not nearly good enough. Amen? The, the devil could not dislodge him. The devil could not deflect him from his calling to go to the cross. And at the end, the devil retreats from the field, a beaten enemy. Because hallelujah, what an achievement. <laughs> When I, when I read this, um, it makes me fall in love with the Bible more. Like when you study it, you just discover new treasures. And I didn't even know these treasures until I had the opportunity to study it this week. Uh, I see how all of the Bible is held together by Jesus Christ. And it makes me love him. Especially when I think of how hungry he was. And how weak he was. And he was just like you and me. And he had to face it the same way that you and me would have to face it. With just the word of God. Um, and I struggle with insomnia bad. You know, I take sleep pills to get to sleep. I mean, imagine 40 days of insomnia and being chased like a, like a fox being hunted by demons. And he did it. He went through a living hell for us. And he won the complete victory. Hallelujah. Amen.